It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Kyle Krabs here, host of Locked On NFL Scouting. Join Joe Marino and me every day as we provide position-by-position analysis of the upcoming NFL Draft. Check out the Locked On NFL Scouting podcast with the Draft Dudes on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It is the Locked On Bengals podcast with your hosts, Joe Goodberry and Jake Lisko. Find us on Twitter at Joe Goodberry and at Jake underscore NFL. Please like, subscribe, and share as we try to grow this community and pump out daily Bengals content just for you. Hey there, Bengals fans, and welcome into another episode of the Lockdown Bengals podcast. Today, we welcome on a special guest to talk about all things related to the salary cap, including what extensions for A.J. Green and Tyler Boyd might look like, why the Bengals manage the cap the way they do, how that compares to the rest of the NFL, and to look ahead at what might be the sticking points in the CBA. I also wanted to give you a quick reminder that, of course, Mailbag Weekend is coming up. And take this opportunity to find the tweet on the Lockdown Bengals account, reply to it with your question. And as we did last week, the winner of the quote-unquote best question prize will get to pick the theme music for next week's Mailbag. So, without further ado, welcome on to the podcast, the cap expert, the CBA guy, the one with whom we will talk money. We've been talking this up for, I think, a couple weeks now, Joe. Yeah. It's Andre Parada here. Andre, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Joe. Uh, it's been a long time coming, but I appreciate the time. And if you don't follow Andre on Twitter, you can at Andre Parada 13 That's two R's, two T's in the last name. Andre is a guy who... If there's a contract that comes out and you don't understand part of it, or if you have a question about the Bengals cap or cash or whatever it is about the Bengals finances, you could probably ask Andre and he'll have thoughts, an opinion, facts, whatever it is. He's your go-to guy on Bengals Twitter for this sort of thing. So Andre, before we get into some of the minutia around the cap and the Bengals signing this offseason, how did you get into the Bengals? Are you a Cincinnati guy? How did you get into the cat stuff so closely? I know you're you're a lawyer, so I'm assuming that has something to do with it, but I'll let you talk for a little bit. Sure. So I was I'm a Cincinnati native, uh, born and raised. I remember uh, watching the Super Bowl, the 88 Super Bowl, or the Super Bowl played in January of 89. I was in first grade. Uh, that was one of the first times I remember crying after a sporting event. Uh, so, I mean, it's when Montana hit John Taylor in the back of the end zone, I, I still held out hope because there were 34 seconds left in the game. But uh, that was my first. I mean, I had been a, a fan of the team for the years prior to that, but uh, that has always stuck with me, uh, that Super Bowl loss. Um, I was actually born 
uh, dating myself here in the early 80s. I was born the year of their first Super Bowl. So I like to think that that coincided with, uh, you know, some some good fortune for our beloved Bengals. Um, I obviously don't remember that. Yeah, <laughs> I was an I was 88 still- baby too. So, you know, we got both years, both years covered on this podcast today. For sure. Yeah. So I don't remember that the 80, the Super Bowl played after the 81 season that was up in, in Pontiac, uh, Michigan. But I do vividly remember being a first grader, uh, the 88 Super Bowl, but born and raised in Cincinnati, Cincinnati kid. Uh, I, I don't live in the area anymore. I live in, in Michigan with my, it's where my wife's from. So, but I've always followed the Bengals. I follow them closely through the uh, horrible '90s decade, the lost decade, so to speak, and then during the resurgence of, you know, led by Marvin Lewis, who obviously has just uh, has just left after 16 seasons at the helm. But he obviously restored, as you guys know, uh, some credibility back in the franchise. So I've been a Bengals fan for uh, better or worse, diehard ever since uh, you know I can remember. Uh, a fan, obviously, of the NFL in general, but specifically of the Bengals. They've always been my team and always will be my team. Um, but to answer your question about how I got into the cap, I, it really started during the lockout of 2011. Uh, there were just a lot of legal issues involved. I mean, the, the owners were locking out the players, the the union decertified. And as an attorney, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a corporate transaction attorney in private practice. It just kind of piqued my interest in in the business and legal aspects of the way a a sports uh, league is run and all the legal issues that go into play when you're contracting with uh, highly skilled employees that are NFL players. And so I really started paying attention to the ins and outs of the new terms of the CBA. And then with that, within the CBA, uh, I really started paying attention to the the salary provisions in there specifically section 13, not to get too specific, but really salary cap and player uh, contract evaluation, player contract evaluations, how they're, how they're broken down, how they're treated, you know, the whole issue with cap and cash, which I think we'll discuss, discuss later on. But that really piqued my interest. So it's almost a decade ago, because again, I've always been a fan, always been a fan of the draft, obviously, uh, since the dawn of free agency, the Bengals obviously have, have never been a major player, so the draft was was our free agency. And obviously that's the how you build a team, but the draft is, is Christmas for any fan, really, and particularly mm-hmm. Bengals fans, as Joe and Jake, you guys well know. So really in 2011, when you know the CBA, the new CBA was ratified, it's hard to believe that it's after next season, it's already going to expire. Um, but that's really what started my, my interest in learning the intricacies of both the, the CBA in general and then player contracts and team salary caps in specific. Gotcha. So before I let Joe ask you a question real quick for all of our Cincinnati listeners, the only thing that Cincinnatians care about is where'd you go to high school? I went to St. Xavier High School. I went to there St. You go. But I'm also a Bearcat. I'm a graduate. I went to undergrad at the University of Cincinnati. So uh, big Bearcat fan. Uh, but I went to St. X High School. So GCL guy. I was a GNC guy. Okay. All right. All right, Joe. Let's get into some Bengals talk. Well, at first I wanted to bring up uh, the first time Andre and I ever interacted, and it was on Cincy Jungle in the comments section, and I believe we were talking about Cordy Glenn. So this is a 2012 draft coming out of Georgia. And the question with Cordy Glenn at the time was, is he athletic enough to play tackle? And in my opinion, he was not. So, uh it's it was it's kind of funny because as the internet goes, and especially now, I think it's definitely more prevalent. But Andre and I went at each other a little bit on whether or not we knew what the other guy was talking about, <laughs> and we kind of had a bet. 
and Andre, you remember this, and we've talked about it recently, but I think it's funny now for for listeners because it came full circle that Cordy Glenn ends up on the Bengals last year, and we I think we, we rekindled this last year, and you said you owe me a dinner. I feel like I owe you one because I was also wrong as you were wrong. But the argument was <laughs> that you said he's going to go in the first round. You're like, he's a first-round pick. You So your evaluation, I think, was correct. Mine was incorrect. I said he's he is a guard, and because of that, he's not going to go in the first round. Now I was correct. He went in the second round. So that is yeah. the that was the argument, right? Is like yeah, I, he probably should have gone in the first round in retrospect, but he did play tackle his whole career. So I give you credit for that. You were you were correct about Cordy Glenn. Well, like you said, Joe, that well, was our first interaction, and obviously, to any draft uh, analysis and and evaluations, I always I defer to you. Obviously, you're the draft expert, but I, I just felt strongly about Cordy. I know he played a bunch of positions when he was in college. I think he played four of the five. I think he played every position except center. Or maybe he uh, maybe he played he didn't play right tackle or something, but I was pretty adamant. I, I thought he he projected well as a tackle. I think actually just based on what I saw last year, he looks you know just speaking speaking in his current form, he looks a little heavier. Yeah. I think he stand to lose a little weight. I mean, you guys would talk about that more eloquently than I could, but I, I did think he'd all, he had the ability to play tackle. Those big long arms. He actually had a good combine. He was pretty athletic, if I remember. His athletic testing numbers were pretty were pretty good for his size. He's, yeah, he's, he's, right. He's, Weight yeah. adjusted. But you're right. Uh, but you're right. We were kind of both right and both wrong. I mean, you were right in the sense he wasn't. A, he didn't end up being a first round pick. He went, I think, at pick 42 or 41 yeah. in the, the lower 40s. And uh, but obviously he, he's played tackle his 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 entire career. And if he shakes this little injury bug that he's had the last couple seasons, I actually think maybe eventually I, you could speak that he may get kicked inside to guard eventually down the down the line. Sure, maybe not with the Bengals too, but just to to extend his career. But uh, yeah, I mean, he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's exactly how I remember the the situation yeah. unfolding uh, prior to the 2012 draft. That's for sure. That conversation always stuck out with me though because it was a um, good lesson in terms of not judging people before you really let them make their case and let the let it fall out and and, in my opinion ever since then we've had a really good relationship we've talked a lot and you know i know you are great at what you know you defer to me when it's something that would should be in my wheelhouse and it's a great relationship and i'm glad you're here to join us today i wouldn't miss it i it should have happened much sooner so i appreciate you guys having me on before real quick we get too far into the cap while you're talking about the draft you guys met talking about a draft prospect in 2012 andre who are your top five targets for the Bengals at 11. I'm going to put you on the spot. Maybe only do three if you only got three, but tell, tell us about your favorite players at the top of the draft here for the Bengals in 2019. I mean, I, I just look at it from a value perspective. I'm, I'm really high on Dwayne Haskins. I'm not sure if he'll make it to 11, but if he's there, I think strong considerations got to be given to him. Uh, I obviously follow you guys well on Twitter, and, and Joe, you've spoken to this, that it plays break down a little bit, and he has to go off script. They're not as designed uh, as the play call calls for. You know that's where he kind of struggles. I'm not sure if that's correctable. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you can improve on that, especially since he's really only had one year as a starter. But I do think the potential for him is quite high, uh, and especially just when you think of how valuable it is to have a rookie or a quarterback on a rookie deal. Uh, yeah. you have four years of cheap labor, essentially. You know, you'll have the fifth year option. And if the Bengals get him at 11, you actually – the fifth-year option ends up being a little cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Texans will realize this with Deshaun Watson, who I think was picked 11, and, and Mahomes – Mahomes, I think, was the 10th pick, so it won't apply Mahomes to him. Mahomes 10, Watson 12. 
Or Watson's 12, you're right. So, so Watson's outside of the top 10. So the reason that's important for the fifth-year option is that fifth-year option is calculated um, – the, the salary is calculated as the average between the third and 25th highest-paid player in that position. So the quarterback position is obviously the most heavily compensated. So that number will still be high, but it will be much less than if the player is picking the top 10 – that average salary is essentially the transition tag number. Uh, yeah. it's, it's salaries one through ten, so that's important. But to answer your question, Jake, I you know I think Dwayne Haskins has got to be given strong consideration. And then just in terms of overall talent and 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 need, although I hate drafting for need, especially in the first round, uh, I think Devin White has the ability to be a, a tremendous, a tremendously impactful linebacker. I think the guy can can do it all. I, by no means is he a sure prospect. I don't really think anybody is for that matter, but. He's something just based on his talent and the need for the team that it would just provide just that much needed athleticism at the, the linebacker unit that they sorely lack. I mean, they've re-signed Preston Brown. He's committed to losing weight, I guess, a little bit. I'm not sure right. if that will it, it help your athleticism, so to speak. It's great if you drop some pounds, but you really can't change your short area quickness and your, your long speed that much, I don't think, even dropping a couple pounds. I mean, unless he has like a Le'Veon Bell type of body transformation, I just don't see it. I mean, I hope he does, but we need the, the Bengals need more athleticism at the linebacker position. Uh, so I'd go Haskins, Dwayne White. I, I think Devin Bush, too, has got to be given consideration. He's undersized. Obviously, I've seen him a lot here in Michigan. Uh, I've attended some of their games. I've some family members who have season tickets to, to Michigan football. He's a great player. He has NFL bloodlines. His father played in the league. That all, I think scouts and, and teams like that for some reason. Yeah. Uh, they they like that aspect. So if I had to put them in order, I'd go Haskins, White, Devin Bush. Uh, I, I always think offensive line, you, you can't have too many. And so I, especially we'll, we'll talk about the Bobby Hart signing, but I think Jonah Williams and maybe even Cody Ford to round out the top five. I think both of those guys will likely be there. Uh, Haskins may or may not be. Devin White, you know, Tampa may select him. Detroit, even picking at eight, may, may select him, even though they picked Jared Davis a couple years ago. Uh, at the linebacker spot. But I would go Haskins, White, Bush, Jonah Williams, and Cody Ford, if you had yeah. to put me on the spot. I think that's a fair uh, five to target. Um, but before they get there, or maybe impacting their draft, especially need at wide receiver if, with A.J. Green and Tyler Boyd entering the final year of their deal, how do you see that playing out, and what could you see numbers-wise for an extension for either one of those guys? Sure. Uh, I think they'll both be Bengals. Obviously, they'll be Bengals this coming year, and I think the Bengals will lock them up. I think they'll both sign extensions this offseason. I think AJ's extension is all but a formality at this point. I mean, people can debate, you know, he's entering what will be his age 31 season this year. He's born in 88. I think his birthday's late July, so he'll turn 31 at the start of training camp. So this will be his age 31 season. Julio Jones has been rumored to, to be on the verge of a new extension that's probably going to be at or exceeding the $20 million a year range. Does that sound and crazy to you? Not really. I mean, okay. if you look at just if you look at it as a if you look at it in a vacuum, it just in a, as a whole number, 20 million for a receiver or thing else. My God, that's an outlandish number. But if you look at it as a percentage of the cap, it's really not that that bad. I mean, AJ, his last extension after his rookie season was in 2015. I think it was right before they boarded the plane to, to play in Oakland. Uh, and he signed a four-year, $60 million extension, which is $15 million AAV. At the time, the cap was $143 million. 
the unadjusted cap. So as a percentage of the cap, 20 million is right at the same percentage as 15 million was back in 2015. So if you look at it from that metric as a percentage of the cap, it's really not that outlandish. Now, ultimately, is there risk involved? Of course. I mean, is are these nagging toe injuries going to come back to bite him and, and bite the club in turn, potentially? That's always a risk. But I think based on Mike Brown's comments in Arizona at the Odors meeting, I really don't think they're going to have much second thought, if any, about extending A.J. Green. He's a yeah. Hall of Fame player. The Bengals have one Hall of Fame player. They should have more, I think. Uh, but uh, Munoz is their only current one. I, I really think that means something to, to the Bengals. I mean, regardless, I know we're not talking about just on-field talent necessarily. Those are ancillary issues. But I think that is important to Mike Brown and the Bengals uh, as a whole. Yeah, I think and we took that the same way Jake and I did after those comments. Yeah, I mean, if if, if obviously if he's productive and, you know, Andy Dalton's been a serviceable, at times better than serviceable quarterback. Uh but if AJ were paired with a truly an elite passer, a guy with a just a, a plus plus arm, I mean, you could see his production and his ability even uh, flourish even more than what it currently is. And, and again, he's on a Hall of Fame trajectory. So I think Julio Jones' deal will probably get done soon, and probably before AJ. And AJ and his agent, I think they may have the same representative. I'm not sure, but AJ's never been a guy to to say, you know, I want to be the highest paid player at my position. But I think he'll hold out for a good deal. And I think the Bengals, though, won't really hesitate to give it to him. So I'm looking at, to answer your question specifically, I'd look at a four-year, $80 million extension. Uh, and so what he's making now, he's scheduled to make just over $12 million between his base salary and his workout bonus. Not his cap. His cash his cash hit this year is going to be over twelve. And so if you bump that up a little bit, it's really not that much that you're adding to him just this year, too, just to get him to sign that that deal. Mm-hmm. And the way you can do it, in fact, I'll post this on Twitter later th- this week or this weekend. I've come up with the actual st- structural breakdown of a pr- proposed contract with a yearly cap hit and cash spends. And if you assume that the cap is going to continue to increase at least $10 million, but let's say it does. Let's say it increases $8 million a year for the next couple of years, you know, and you keep the cap hits pretty consistent. As a percentage of the cap, that $20 million APY is still going to be very reasonable, for, especially for an elite player. Again, you can argue about the value of a receiver and, and allocating those resources elsewhere. Obviously, that's that's a fair argument. But I just don't see them letting A.J. Green walk. I even don't see them letting him play out this year and tagging him next year. Because if he does go this year playing on this final year of his deal, they're not going to let him hit the open market. They will franchise him next year. Um, so in order to avoid that, because um, it potentially does get messy too when that happens, I, I think they just – they. I don't even say bite the bullet. I think they're happy to extend him. And I think four-year, $80 million extension, which would make the terms of the deal actually five years and a little over $92 million. So if you take what's called the paper money, as people, as other more uh, eloquent cap experts on Twitter say, it, it would end up being about a $92 million deal over five years because you're including the year he's currently under contract. And that averages out to just over $18.4 million. So I think that's the sweet spot. Four years – 80, 80 million extension that puts him through his age 35 season but the way aj is conducting himself minus these nagging injuries he's he's in incredible shape he takes care of his body and with sports science now that aj may not be that concerning so i see that type of deal getting done this offseason and I, it probably gets done either before training camp or definitely before the start of the, the regular season and so you mentioned that you think that he takes care of himself well. He's been in good shape. He has had injuries the last few seasons, yep. and there's not a great track record for receivers in their 30s continuing to perform at a, let's say, Pro Bowl level, even though the Pro Bowl is a popularity contest. And AJ will right. probably still go even if he's 
not necessarily playing at that level for the next few years. Do you think right. that that a four-year extension is a wise move? Or do you think it's just a move that will happen? And it, it will, it'll be well-received, I think. AJ is very popular. But do you think yep. it's a wise move for a football team from a, from a business, from a team-building perspective? That's a great question. I mean, if if we're looking at it from the perspective as of a team like the New England Patriots, they would never consider – I, I wouldn't say never, but they would strongly consider not extending him at those terms, precisely for the reasons you mentioned, Jake. Uh, the sustainability of a receiver into their 30s. Uh, AJ with a four-year extension would be playing in, into his age 35 season. So a team like the Patriots would never do that. I mean, you just you just probably wouldn't see it. But their whole philosophy too is they never really relied on that type of receiver too. I mean, they've they've had Gronkowski, I guess, retired unofficially. He hasn't submitted his paperwork, so they do have good receiving threats, regardless of their tight end or receiver. But they never they they got him on a great deal. They extended him when you could prior to the new CBA. After, you didn't have to wait three years, so they extended him very early and got incredible value from from a Hall of Fame player. So, is it wise? I, I could see it either way. I mean, it's it, are there teams that that would are there successful teams that would consider not doing that? Absolutely. I mean, you, I mentioned the Patriots is this one, but um, I don't necessarily because the cap is not stagnant and because there are other CBA constraints, you have to spend this money. You have to spend at a certain percentage of the cap. Who else are you going to spend it on for the Bengals? And they they whiffed on their on the fourteen draft. They whiffed on the fifteen draft. If you guys have talked about. 16 looks pretty promising, but I mean, who are you, you going to give a lot of money to Joe Mixon? He's a running back. If anything, and I like Joe Mixon as a player, if anything, I'd be against extending Joe Mixon. I'd, yep, we've it, talked about as, that also. As, as, as callous as it sounds, I'd run Joe Mixon in the ground the next two years. <laughs> and, and I mean, pretty much what the Steelers try to do with Le'Veon. And that's, I want Joe Mixon around, but you can make a stronger argument that, and I think the Bengals will eventually extend Joe Mixon is my point. Uh, and I don't see I wouldn't necessarily see the value in that, not necessarily because of Joe Mixon of who he is, but just because of the position he plays. So I, I hate to, to sit on the fence on this question, but that's it really is a million dollar question. Uh, a player like A.J. Uh, Green. But look at the Falcons, right? The Falcons have a quarterback in, in Matt Ryan who's who's ostensibly a little better than Andy Dalton. He's had a, he is better. He had an MVP season. They've made the Super Bowl. They should have won that Super Bowl. They're up 28 to three. And the Falcons are not going to hesitate to extend Julio Jones. I think Julio is a year or two younger than AJ because he came out, I think, after junior year. I don't, I don't know if that's true, but I think he may be a year younger. So they are going to extend him. They will extend him. And they may do a five-year extension for Julio. And uh, to a- think about also, the Falcons have invested at wide receiver also with that's signing right. Mohamed Sanu, drafting Kelvin Ridley last year. So similar situation to the Bengals, drafting that's John right. Ross in the first round, and now they have to pay their slot guy. So who are they going to spend that money on? Tyler Boyd. What do you think for Tyler Boyd? Yeah, I see Boyd getting extended too. Uh, but the, the way to get Boyd under an extension, um, you got to you have to really sweeten the pot because if you're Boyd and his agent, you're you're saying, uh, you know, I'll play out this season and I'll hit the open market. And there's no way, even if they re-sign AJ Green, there's no way the Bengals will tag Tyler Boyd. I don't see it unless he explodes for like a 1,400 yard right. season and you know, you know, 12 touchdowns is just is just incredible. And maybe AJ gets hurt this year and Tyler really establishes himself as the go-to guy. They won't tag him if they if they don't sign him, uh, especially considering that we'll, we'll likely have signed Green. So you really got to sweeten that deal in the sense that you really got to give Tyler a lot of a lot of cash this year to, to entice him to forego getting on the open market next year. 
So for Boyd, so if you look at it, if you look at the guys on the open market, the slot receiver, that's the receivers that signed last month, you got Adam Humphreys with the Titans, signed a four-year, $36 million deal. That's $9 million a year. Cole Beasley signed four for 29 in Buffalo. Uh, that's $7.5 million. But Boyd is, I'd say, a better player. He's younger than those guys, uh, and I think he's a better player. Uh, yeah. So him and his agents are going to say, look, we can go to the open market next year, and if you account for the increase in, in cap that's likely to occur, you know, Tyler is going to get 10 or 11, if not more, on the open market. And so I think a deal, you know, honestly, it's going to it's going to cost a little bit to get Tyler Boyd. But I would say, I, and I like the four-year deals, and it looks like the Bengals, too, kind of, that's a sweet spot for these extensions. So I think a four-year, anywhere between $40 million and $44 million in new money average, that's 10 to $11 million AAV. I think that gets it with with really strong cash in year one because Tyler's only making, I mean, only, I mean, in the, in the relative world of NFL football players, he's making a, a million dollars this year. I think he's making right. Uh, one, three is his cap number. I think a little over one is his cash. So it'd be so, a nice pay raise for him. For, absolutely. So that's security for him. And obviously the way the Bengals, they don't guarantee base salaries. They guarantee the signing bonus and that's about it. But the way they structure their contracts, they have what I call effective guarantees where they're really not going to cut a guy after mm-hmm two years, probably even after three. So you can pretty much call that money that those two to three year cash flows is guarantees. But I see a four year, honestly, if you're going to get Tyler, if you're serious about getting Boyd in the, in the fold and you don't want to mess around and nickel and dime him and his agent, you got to present him maybe with a four year, $40 million deal, but then willing to go up to about four year, 44 million. And that's 11 million AAV. Um, that's a lot of investment, obviously, in the wide receiver group. And then you got John Ross, exactly. who still has a lot to prove. But I think with this new offense, he'll he'll do well. So that's a lot of money. Jake, to your point about how wise is it to invest in a single player in A.J. Green, who's going to in, into his 30s, you can certainly make the argument how wise is it to invest in that one position group because it's going to be expensive. But if you look at it as a percentage of the cap, the numbers are still pretty reasonable. Um in terms of if you take their combined cap hits, it, you're you're still spending, you'd probably be at around maybe 17% of the cap, though, in just two guys. Uh, and that's a lot. But those Ross guys, has a decent cap hit also. He still, does. Obviously, being the ninth pick. And I was going to yeah. get to that as overspending. We talk about positional cap a lot. And I was, and I'm glad you just rolled right into overspending, especially at one position. Receiver seems like the one you don't see a lot of teams do that, or at least success, the successful teams spend at wide receiver. Yeah. The Bengals almost have no choice but to. Yeah, right now, just before right. we answer that question, the Browns are the, have the highest cap hits for their wide receivers in 2019 because of obviously the Odell Beckham trade, 36 right. million for all of their receivers. So. If if you're giving Boyd ten or eleven million and AJ twenty million, if those are the cap hits, which they aren't necessarily the cap hits, because a cap hit is not always the same as a cash. We we'll get into that in a bit. Those two those two guys alone would be fourth in the NFL this year. Sorry, fifth, right behind the Eagles, who are thirty one point six million for their wide receiver core. And then adding in John Ross and what he makes, that puts them probably near the top. Or oh yeah, and and the bottom of the roster guys. For sure, because you said AJ's at twelve this year and Tyler Boyd's at at about one. So that the Bengals, okay. Well, the Bengals' current cap number is twenty six. So if you add roughly eighteen to that, yeah, that's that's first place by some distance. Right, and the Browns could get away with doing that because you know they can't even touch Mayfield's contract for another two years at the earliest. That's Uh, the benefit. So so that's that's going back to my Haskins uh, thing too. 
in terms of my draft desires, so to speak. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Eagles, Jake. That's good. I mean, the Eagles were they want they beat the Patriots a couple years ago in the Super Bowl, and they don't seem to have any issue. I know they signed Alshon Jeffrey to that big that one year deal, and then they extended him after that one year. That's such a weird deal. scenario, right there, right? Yeah. Have you ever seen that getting a one year deal and then signing him before he even really plays it out? I give uh, kudos to Howie Roseman. I, yeah. I I think the Bengals really are in desperate need of a Howie Roseman type. I he is my favorite. Uh, the executive vice president, football administrator in football, not just because he wins, but the way he structures his contracts and really just maximizes the salary cap. Not everything, not everything he does turns out well, but I mean, the proof's in the pudding, so to speak. He gets, he maximizes that the value of his team and, and what he does, but I've never kind of seen that, that uh, arrangement one year deal. And then a kind of a nice bump before the season's over. And you kind of, you just get that. It's like, essentially yeah. you would have signed him to a five-year deal to begin with, but it's a unique approach for sure. I think the other thing to mention with the Browns, too, is that they have more cap room than most teams in the NFL right now. They're actually spending $11.1 million on the quarterback position this year compared to the Bengals at 16.9. So they're only spending, what, $6 million left on quarterbacks if you're rounding? So, right. I mean, they do have a quarterback on a rookie deal. I think they must, that must be dead money, right? It has to be. Or, or yeah, for Tyrod Taylor or... Right. Yeah, or they are still paying for Brock Osweiler. That's what I was just looking at. <laughs> I'm not sure. No, if they let him go last year, his only cap hit, would, I think it was pre-June 1, so it would only be accelerated into the one year. So I'm not sure if he's still on their cap. No, uh, but I don't think not. so. But. I'm actually not sure where they're getting to that high of a number for quarterbacks. I'll try to look at this for a second. Drew Stanton has a $3.7 million cap hit. There you go. So actually, that's it. Baker's is seven point five million, and Drew Stanton's is three point seven million. Baker, I mean, that's because Baker was the number one overall pick, so that's right. close to like a twenty million dollar bonus. You divide that over the four years of the deal, that's already five million just in bonus allocation, and plus his salary is is uh, they jumps it up to seven million total cap pick because the salary is around two. But um, yeah, I mean, what, I mean, look, I mean, the hope is with Zach Taylor and, and Brian Callahan, even though Callahan won't be calling the plays is that this offense kind of explodes. And if you're, you know, if this truly is, as Mike Brown said, you know, an evaluation year for Dalton, you know, they're not going to just give him an extension. I would hope not. Um, Then you hope that this offense at least gets the receivers to flourish because they have spent a lot. They've had, they've expended a lot of draft capital in that area. And if you got to pay people on offense, you know, you, you, you pay those guys because really they're offensive linemen. There's prices on a rookie deal. Glenn is going to be out, out of a contract after 2020, bowling after this year. You're not spending it really on the offense, offensive line. Even though this year, I would say based on who they paid, paying John Miller, oh, paying Bobby Hart, we can get into sure. that. And, and now I think yeah. it's a fair time. Yeah, I think now is a fair time. We're just going to take a quick break real quick, and then we'll come back. We'll talk about what they're spending on the offensive line. We'll talk about a little bit of general stuff, why the Bengals manage their top 51 cap the way they do, why they always float about $10, 12000000 million every year. If, the, if Find out if there's a method to the madness. So we'll be right back. If you're looking for the most comprehensive NFL draft coverage this offseason, look no further than the Locked On NFL Scouting Podcast. Join the draft dudes, Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino, as they go position by position through the NFL free agent class and into the star-studded crop of college stars who will be selected in the 2024 NFL Draft. If you want to know who your favorite NFL team should be adding to its roster, you need to check out Locked On NFL Scouting. Available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. 
Welcome back to the Lockdown Bengals podcast. We have Bengals cap expert Andre Parada here. And before we get too deep into some of the signings they made, some of the areas where they spend some of this cap and, and money, uh, if you could break down the cash versus cap, uh, and really explain it to our listeners better than we ever could before we talk specifics on the players. Sure. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a critical, um, it's a critical distinction that needs to be made. So uh, the, between what I call a cash spend and what's all universally known as the cap hit. So I'll, I'll kind of walk you through like maybe a simple example with even a nameless player. We'll just take a simple contract and how it's usually reported in, in the media and what I think immediately people people think uh, of of that contract and uh, how the what the potential caps cap hits are so let's just say you have a uh, a free agent player who signs a two-year 20 million dollar deal and immediately you think okay that averages out to 10 year or 10 million a year which that's the average of that contract and so inevitably people will think well that's a 10 million dollar cap hit in year one and a 10 million dollar cap hit in year two and that may very well be the case, but a lot of teams structure their contracts differently. And the way you get a different, the reason why you get a different cap hit and a cash spend is because of how signing bonuses are treated uh, for cap accounting purposes. So let's take that two-year $20 million deal. Let's say that two-year $20 million deal includes a $10 million signing bonus. So a lot of people then think, my suspicion is maybe people think that $10 million is added to the $20 million. And it's like they're saying, oh, it's two years, $20 million with a $10 million signing bonus. So it's $30 million. But signing bonus is always part of the total. So let's take two years, $20 million. That includes a $10 million signing bonus. So because it's two years, a signing bo- the way signing bonuses are treated, you prorate them. You divide them equally over the years of the contract, maximum for five years. So if it's a six-year contract, you can only divide it over five. But for our purposes, the two-year, $20 million deal, you take that $10 million signing bonus and you allocate $5 million of that bonus to year one and $5 million to year two, even though that bonus is literally paid to the player right away. Now, there may be different payment terms where they get half of the bonus now and half in three months. But for cap purposes, that bonus is equally divided over the years of the contract. So two years, $25 million, or two years, $20 million, a $10 million bonus. Let's say then the guy, the player has a $1 million base salary. Let's keep it very simple. $1 million base salary in year one, and then a $9 million base salary in year two. So all those numbers add up, right? You have $10 million bonus, that's 10. $1 million uh, base salary in year one, that's 11. $9 million base salary in year two, that's how you get to the total $20 million. So now what's the cash spend of the, well, let's, let's talk about the cap hit, right? The cap hit is really just an accounting mechanism, how that, mo- that money is accounted for on the team's cap. So two years, 20 million with a $10 million bonus. If you kind of visualize it here in a $1 million year one base, since five mil- since that bonus is divided, that $10 million bonus is divided equally over those two years. $5 million of that bonus allocation is to year one. You add it to his $1 million base. That player's cap hit is only $6 million for year one. Even though he's been paid $11 million, he gets the $10 million bonus and his $1 million base salary. So the year one cap hit is $6 million. The year one cash spend is $11 million. 
and that's the ten million bonus and the one million dollar base. But since you're, but for a cap purposes, how you get the cap hit, you have to divide the signing bonus equally over the terms of the deal. And so a lot of people, I would suspect, say see that deal or hear it being reported two years, twenty million. They think ten million dollar cap hit. They know the average is correct. Whatever it ends up being, just the average is ten million. But the cap hit is may not be ten million, especially if there's a signing bonus. And so then the year two cap hit would be you have the nine million dollar base, and then you have you still have the five million dollar bonus allocation for year two. So the year two cap hit is fourteen million. So the cap hits always will add up to the overall value of the contract. So year one cap hit is six. Year two cap hit is fourteen. That gets you the twenty million. But it's not ten and ten for cap purposes. But also then the year two cash, he didn't get paid the signing bonus in year two. He got paid in year two. He just got paid that nine million dollar base. So his year two cap is fourteen, but his year two cash is only nine million. And so that's the critical distinction between cap and cash. Now there are, there are whole there are a whole host of other things in the CBA. They, they're called other amounts treated as signing bonus. I, I won't get too far into that, but for example, there could be a roster bonus um, that's in the contract if the roster bonus is earned after the final preseason game, for example. So, for example, it could come into play with an AJ Green extension. Um, you know, the Bengals could say, "Here's a five million dollar roster bonus," but if that bonus is earned after preseason game number four this year, that roster bonus will be allocated just like a signing bonus, even though it's tra- technically a roster bonus. Uh, but I won't get too far into that stuff. So to use that 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 simple example, two year, twenty million dollar deal with a ten million dollar signing bonus and a one million dollar base salary, that player has a cash spend of eleven million. Gets the ten million dollar bonus and a and a one million dollar in cash. That's his cash that he earns. But for the cap, how that how that money is allocated for the team salary cap, you take the ten million and divide it by two because that's the length of the contract. That's $5 million, and then you add his $1 million base. That's how you get the $6 million cap hit for that player. Even though people looking at it or hearing about that deal think, oh, his cap hit has to be $10 million because it's two years, $20 million. It may be the case if there's no signing bonus, uh, you know, if you just pay the guy $10 million in base year one and $10 million in base in year two, and that's a $10 million cap hit and cash spend. But that's now, how you how get the – I was going to say, how do the Bengals structure it? Are they different than everyone else? or do? Because it normally seems like when I'm looking at it, their cap hits are normally pretty flat throughout the life of the contract. Yeah, they, they're pretty consistent. They like to keep the cap hit and cash spends pretty uh, pretty straight, pretty equal, essentially. Uh, they like It's called like a one-to-one cap-to-cash ratio. They like to achieve that, although that's not always the case. I mean, with an AJ extension, I, I foresee some of the – the cash to be much higher, especially in year one, than the cap because they'll probably give him a big bonus. But to your to your point, Joe, you're right. Most of the guys that they've signed to free agent deals, whether they're retained free agents like Bobby Hart or an outside free agent on a multi year deal like John Miller, the Bengals' typical contract contract structure in those deals includes a modest signing bonus, followed by a year one roster bonus followed by a, an off-season year two roster bonus. So I think that the the Bobby Hart deal had a $3 million bonus, right, a signing bonus. So it's a three-year deal. That $3 million, $1 million gets allocated to each of those years, 2019, 2020, 2021. But he got a $3 million check. Uh, you know, he got a $3 million signing bonus. So that's his cash in his pocket, $3 million. Uh, but his, but his, for cap purposes, 
one, only $1 million is allocated for each of those years. Then I think he also got a $3 million roster bonus, which is cash again to him. But that roster bonus counts immediately uh, against the cap. And then he got, I, I'm not sure what his base salary was, but I think his cash spend is uh, $7.4 million, And his cap hit is five nine. And the reason the cap hit is lower than the cash is because you have that salary bonus allocation in years two and three. And so whenever you have salary bonus allocation in subsequent years, that's what leads to the potential for dead money. Because when a player is cut or traded or waived, any amount of that bonus that's not account, that has not been accounted for on the cap immediately ac- accelerates onto the team's cap once that player is removed from the roster. They call it dead money because it's money that counts against the cap, even though it's already been paid to the player, but it's not hit or been accounted for on the team's cap. And the way you get that is, through, is because of the signing bonus allocation. Because the signing bonuses are allocated over the life of the contract, you have some bonus money. Again, it's money that's already been paid, but you have some bonus money for cap purposes that have not accounted that have not been accounted for in the team's cap. And so, when you remove that player from the roster, either via trade or waiving the player or cutting the player outright, that bonus money needs to then count against the cap. So they call it it accelerates against the team's cap. If that transaction happens before June one. All of the future year bonus money, the current and future year bonus money allocation, immediately accelerates onto the team cap. If the transaction occurs after June 1 and there are futures remaining on the contract and there are fu- and there, in those future years there's a signing bonus allocation, the signing bonus allocation for the current year counts against the team's cap and then the future year allocations count against the team's cap next year. The Bengals notoriously don't like to do post-June 1 transactions because they like, if they're going to bite the bullet, which they, they at least the last couple of years, they lead the league in having the least amount of dead money. But I guess their, their thinking is, and I, I tend to agree with it, if you're, if you're going to bite the bullet on dead money, you might as well just, just bite it, just, you know, take a bite of the apple now and get it over with. But other teams handle it differently. They'll say uh, they really don't mind. And you can actually denote a player as being a post-June 1 cut even though the cut happens before June 1. You're, you're allowed to do that twice a year for two players per team. So you can make the actual cut before June 1, but say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assign this as a post-June 1 cut and then take the cap hits due to the bonus acceleration over the current year and then the subsequent year. So we got the explanation there of cash versus cap, basically everything. That's great, Andre. Uh, hopefully everyone understands that after that. I want your take now then on – what I think was the most wasteful signing, wasteful money, cash this year, $7.4 million. And when the way the Bengals traditionally operate, paying him that money means he's the starter. Even if they draft a guy at the 11th pick, that 11th pick is probably going to make a little bit less cap hit-wise, definitely. But mm-hmm. uh, cash-wise, they're a whole different subject. Yeah. But Bobby Hart, how did you feel about that? Did that really throw you off? I mean, this is not how they've treated subpar tackles in the past. You're absolutely right, and I, I've I've spoken on this. I, I was outspoken on Twitter and uh, and just speaking with you guys off the record, so to speak. I mean, it was it was truly baffling, and I know uh, team executives have, have mentioned uh, they they've kind of seemingly been defensive a little bit about it, but you know they've heard the the fan uproar. But it's it's justifiable. I mean, it, there's really no way. I, I really think that they misevaluated um, what Bobby Hart's market would have been. The Bengals reportedly just had a player of, of similar caliber as Jordan as, Mills. Jordan Mills in in house for a visit over the over this week. The fact that Jordan Mills is still on the market very likely tells you that Bobby Hart would have likely been on the market at this point too. 
And But to put it in perspective, Joe and Jake, Bobby Hart last year, or prior to signing with the Bengals in, 2015, in 2018, Bobby Hart was a seventh-round pick of the New York Giants, and he essentially quit on his team. I mean, you talk to some Giant players, he, 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 he was dogging it, and they cut him. And they signed him, I think they signed him before, before the scouting combine last year. And it was a very modest deal. It was a one, It was a true prove-it deal. There was nothing given to him. And to Bobby's credit, he, I mean, for lack of, there wasn't much competition, but he earned the job last year. But it was on a one-year, $1.05 million deal. And we all know how Bobby Hart played. This is, again, not an, nothing against Bobby Hart as a person. He didn't give himself that deal. I, I'm happy for Bobby Hart as a person. He didn't get, he didn't sign he didn't negotiate uh, you know he didn't give himself that deal I mean if somebody offers you that deal you 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 run to sign it uh, but he signed he was playing on a one a slightly over one million dollars last year in no way could you objectively say that his play warranted essentially a seven fold increase in salary uh, from his play last year I mean regardless of the penalties regardless if, if coach Jim Turner thinks. The penalties were truly his fault or all his fault. It doesn't matter. If you just objectively look at his play, it was substantially subpar for for an offensive tackle. And, you know, obviously the Bengals had their the 2015 picks. Uh, their contracts were up. They were never going to re-sign those guys. Jake Fisher has changed positions now. He's in Buffalo, and oh boy, he's down in Jacksonville. But look what Oboy oh he signed for. Look, look at the fact that Jordan Mills is still on the market. Bobby Hart, if you want to bring him back, that's fine. I guess the uproar is it's not necessarily of, as you know, Troy Blackburn said, or who, who's going to play? Are you going to pin your hopes on a rookie? It's the, the issue because it's a value issue. And in no way can you objectively justify a, a, a regardless of the three years, 16.5 million with the potential to earn 21, no way. Can you justify paying Bobby Hart $7.4 million next year? You just cannot justify that, yeah. regardless of the fact that they had nobody in-house to replace, to replace. Look, the Bengals had a situation in 2013 with Andre Smith. And Andre had his first his struggles his first couple of years, but Andre developed into a sound right tackle. And the Bengals dug their heels in in 2013, much like they did with Darquez Denard just now. They dug their heels in. They said, Andre, go out and test, go on the open market by all means. Establish your market. And he didn't find what he liked out there. And he came essentially crawling back to the Bengals. And they signed him at the time to a three-year, $18 million deal. Day before the draft, right? Day two of the draft. Oh, the day two of the they, draft. That's right. They, it, it was the Friday of the draft. They had, It was the day they picked Giovanni Bernard and Marcus Hunt, by the way, because it was day two of the 2013 draft. And he signed that deal. I think Jeff Hobson wrote on Bengals.com that you know he was brought into the building and they were looking at the draft board. And the story goes, if you're to believe it, that they were looking at Menelik Watson at Geo's pick, the right tackle out of Florida, who I don't even think is in the league anymore. No, Mayor. he's a bum. <laughs> so they dug their heels in with with an objectively better player at the Andre Smith. You can make the argument, even though Smith is unsigned, that Smith, you know, he's he's much older than Bobby Hart. But at the time in 2013, you know, Smith was a much better player. And what was the risk there? The risk was having Smith potentially leave and, and pinning your hopes on Menelik Watson, maybe? Right. Because they had nobody behind Andre Smith. And so if you're going to dig your heels in for Andre Smith and it ended up working out, then why are you rushing? Because that's what it was. This was on the Monday of free agency, technically before free agency started. So Hart was an in-house guy, so you could you could resign him at any point. You didn't have to wait till Wednesday at 4. But there was no rush. There was no rush to sign a player of Bobby Hart's caliber. 
Yeah, and that's speaking no will will of Bobby Hart. I mean, it's just it, it's it's an unjustifiable contract offer. I don't care that you say three years, sixteen point five. I'm not looking three years down the road. I'm looking at what you're paying him this year, based on what he's done in the past. There is no way to justify that from a cap valuation and player valuation standpoint. I'm not going to belabor the point, obviously, and uh, you know it is what it is at this point. I hate that term, but there's nothing you can do about it. But if you're objectively evaluating that contract, the one year payout, essentially. Because he's guaranteed to be on the roster this year, uh, it, it is it is a head scratcher to say the least. It is is baffling, and it's really quite frankly unjustifiable. And the inconsistency part is what really gets me. Is uh, they play hardball with Dark West Denard in the same offseason? Exactly. They they failed to play hardball at all with Bobby Hart. And exactly. like like you said, you, you, we compared. I, I it might have been this podcast. It may have been last week. But uh, when they when we found out Jordan Mills was coming in, I mean, number wise, production wise, he's a very similar player, and, and he's yep. still here. So even had Bobby Hart's market have been, you know, something out there, no, someone wanted to give him a deal, fine, you let him go because a similar talent player is still there a month later. Um, exactly right. I, then, I'll, one last thing I'll mention on there, if I could. You know, if Bobby Hart, kudos to him and his agent for getting that best deal for him. But if Bobby Hart would have come back, like obviously he did and said, hey, we have a market forming for us, then you have to walk away from that deal. You have to, in no way can you justify, especially the way they play hardball this year with Dark West and Art, different position, but a markedly better player than Bobby Hart, as you mentioned, Joe. You have to walk away from that deal. If the deal turns into we're going to pay him $7.4 million this year after paying him $1 million and change last year, you have to walk away. You have, No matter what's not in the cupboard behind him, you have to walk away from that deal. And that's and they've a done great it before, point. too. They've right. done it with exactly. Marvin Jones and Mohamed exactly. Sanu and Andrew Whitworth and Kevin Zeitler. Kevin Zeitler. So They've done it with a bunch of guys. They did it with Jonathan Joseph and re-signed Leon Hall instead. They did it to some extent with Mike Johnson when they re-signed Carlos Dunlap instead. And that's one of the frustrating parts also is that when you – we talk about all the time we'd like to see the Bengals do more one-year deals and you know bring these guys on prove-it deals. The Patriots do it all the time. And <laughs> instead, the Bengals, they do a one-year deal for Preston Brown and Bobby Hart last year. Those are two of their prove-it guys. What did they prove other than not being able to stay healthy or give you poor play and then both got raises and extensions? And so you go, man, not only do they not know what a one-year prove-it deal is supposed to return or what it's supposed to look like in order to receive an extension, they went and overpaid, in my opinion, for both players. But, exactly but then right. you can point at Tyler Eifert and say, this is what a one-year prove-it deal should look like, and then they got a better <laughs> deal this year. And then exactly Dark West Denard do another one-year deal this year. I wonder You're if right. it's I wonder if it's different people. I mean, I think Katie Blackburn's doing all the negotiation now, but I'm, I wonder if it's different people sometimes. You know, I think Katie and Troy do the negotiations. I think Duke may do some negotiations as well. Um, but yeah, Katie and Troy. Troy and they look. They the reason why the Bobby Hart deal is so shocking is because one thing, and you can question their approach in free agency, but and their cap management, but they tend to get very good value in their deals. They don't overpay. And so from that perspective, if you look at the New England model in that regard, that's that's commendable. They they know what their value is, but they missed. And there's no there's no hiding that fact. And the fact that maybe they're trying to defend it, it makes it even worse because your fan base isn't stupid. And not that they're saying or implying that we are, but a bad deal is a bad deal. And you can call it out when it needs to be called out. And there's no way to, to paint the Bobby Hart deal other than it being a bad deal. Um, even if it ends up being a one-year deal, it actually makes it worse if it's a one-year deal because you're going to end up paying him $7.4 million for just one year. And that's laughably uh, that's laughably bad. It's just, it's just bad. 
Any of these signings that you do like, though, value-wise? I like the Eifert signing. I, I Look, Tyler Eifert is owed, a th- I think I tweeted it out, he's owed a 1,000 years of, of, of good health and fortune from the football gods. If that guy could ever stay healthy, again, it's not his, he's not, you know, pro football doc, doc is a good follow on Twitter. He hates the term injury prone, but obviously Eifert is, he hasn't played a full season in quite some time. I think maybe since his rookie year, but um, if he could stay healthy and if you can limit his, his packages to red zone and, and other sub packages like you guys have talked about, I mean, his the value is there, especially at three million that they signed him for. I do like John Miller. John Miller is a good value signing. That's a good time signing. I mean, Joe, you, you're up in Buffalo, and, and obviously the Bills fans were kind of indifferent at best, but maybe even happy to see him go. So, and they signed Quentin Spain today. They signed. Morris and Spencer Long, Ty Nitschke is a tackle. They, so they've been signing offensive linemen, and the fact that they let one go kind of may speak to the fact that they didn't really care for him that much, at least to keep him around. But I do like that deal because, one, it is a noticeable upgrade from the current right guard, uh, Redmond. It's it's an improvement. I think Mike Brown has even mentioned that he's the, the starter going into the season. John Miller is. And obviously, uh, I, I, he's an improvement over Redmond. And the value is there. The value – I had uh, – Miller at three years and 17 mil or 16.5. That's, that's a good signing to me. Um, especially considering what they had, that's, that's not an, it may be a slight overpay, but I think the valuation is there. It's a three year deal. And, uh, if he can get some good coaching, uh, I, I think that's a solid signing. I, I like Tyler Eifert. I, I like dark West Denard. I honestly, if you look at my Twitter feed, I had dark West Denard at five years and 40 some million, at, like a little under 9 million AAV, which I would have been comfortable with, but one year, four and a half million. Sure, I'll, I'll take that for Dark Wasn't Art. I think that's a great deal. Yeah, so if they want a dog in their heels, yeah, I'm shocked too. I mean, I think he needs a new agent, but that's a different story. But, huh. but to, so to kind of tie this all back to the Bobby Hart valuation, if if the Bengals would have announced the Bobby Hart extension for the exact same terms, maybe even slightly more, one year, one point five, I don't think anybody would have had an issue with it. Maybe some people would have objected to it, but at that at that rate, you're saying obviously he's not the starter. And it's another prove-it deal, even though he really didn't prove anything, obviously, last year. Um, I think nobody would have obje- objected to that. So from a value perspective, I like the Denard signing. Uh, I like Eifert, and I like John Miller because they needed an upgraded right guard. And I think he, at, at if nothing else, he represents a serious upgrade over uh, Redmond, who started last year. So let's just do a couple more topics here. First, let's talk about the way the Bengals manage their cap, because I think it's I mean, it's not totally unheard of, but the Bengals, it seems like every year we have Paul Daner and Jeff Hobson telling us they need to keep X dollars available. And we know that in the last two years, at least, the Bengals haven't necessarily lived up to that mantra of keeping X dollars available. But for the last five years or four years, at least, it's been, you know, 14 million, 12 million, 10 million dollars they've had for the whole season beneath the cap and they've, you know, rolled it over to the next year or whatever you want to say about it, but they haven't used all of their cap every year. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's safe to say that they, the Bengals take a very conservative approach to the cap and that's fine. You, you never really want to be tight against the cap, but really, if you look at it, there's really no such thing as cap hell uh, because there are ways to get around it. The Steelers, if you, the Steelers take the same approach as the Bengals do with regard to kind of skewing outside free agency, but they're always tied against the cap. I mean, the Steelers are constantly restructuring and renegotiating deals. And all that does really is you're some more cash to the player and that in the form of a signing bonus and to our cash cap discussion earlier, 
that then does kick the cap can down the road because that signing bonus money gets prorated. So the Steelers are constantly in what is termed as cap hell, but the way you get out of that is you just kind of pump more cash into it. And yes, it it, it kicks the cap can on the road, but you 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 cre- do create immediate cap space. And then you look at a team like the Saints. The Saints are always up against the cap, very tight. Um, and, and they got players like Mike Thomas, who's a second round pick. Uh, so he he doesn't even have the fifth year option. He's going to get a monster deal. Mike Thomas actually may get more than twenty million if, you're, if we're talking about just because of his youth. He may his his eventual deal may exceed both Julio's and AJ's eventual extensions, but that's a different topic. But uh, to answer your point or question, Jake, they, do. I think last year though, they only, they went into the season at around um, 9 million or, or 10 million into the season. And they ended up being at the end of the season, 7.5 million under, they, they roll all that over. They, they always roll. You're allowed to roll every dollar, uh, every cap dollar in unused cap space into the following season under the new CBA. Uh, that's how the Browns have rolled over 50 million plus in the last three years. Uh, but the Bengals, I think last year rolled over 7.5 million. And so the, the salary cap this year was is 188.2. That's the unadjusted cap. But if you add in the Bengals 7.5 million rollover, it ends up being around 195. 188 plus seven, it's about 195 and change. So that 195 is their adjusted cap. But yeah, do they take a very conservative approach in terms of we need to have a, a bigger cushion, so to speak, going into the season? Yes. And and I don't fault Paul Daner and I don't fault Jeff Hobson because they're not cap experts by any means, but they, they justify it or they write their reasons for justifying it as well. They need to protect against in-season injuries. But the fact is that when you replace a guy uh, for in-season injuries, it's usually a guy on the practice squad. It, it occasionally may be a street-free agent, but even a guy, a veteran you pick up off the street is not going to be commanding $5 million, or even $2 million. Maybe a million, but again, that is prorated since these players are paid over the course of 17 weeks. If, you saw, if a guy gets injured week one and you sign a guy, a, a street-free agent, to $2 million value, that's not really $2 million. It's 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 16 17th percent of 2 million. So it's almost 2 million, but it's not quite the 2 million. But if it's a practice squad guy, he gets on the roster uh, at the, the minimum salary this year is 495,000. And that's assuming he's he 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 goes on the roster, I mean he can't be after week 1 or week 1 because he's got an injury. So that's starting in week 2 and that's a further reduction. So already two guys there is less than a 1 million dollar cost in in net cap cost. And so there, there are there are very good, uh, you know, we call cap experts, guys that really follow cap on Twitter. There's Jason uh, from over the cap. There's there's a guy who follows the Texans. His name is Troy Chapman. He's a is an invaluable follower. And he's actually Texans tracked. Cap, right. Exactly. He's actually the last couple of years tracked the injury replacement cost. And he's he, at least for the Texans. I'm not sure if he's done it league wide. And last year for the Texans, who had their fair share of injuries, he mentioned that the 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 cap cost in in injury replacements was anywhere between four and four and a half million dollars. So that's if you it. want to take that, that's fine. And that's that's kind of even on the higher end because the Texans had a lot of injuries. You can approach a season uh, with with a sizable buffer, but in no way does it need to be uh, upwards of ten or twelve million necessarily. Now, if you're not going to spend that money, that's fine not to not to spend it because you don't value your players that way. But my problem is always the justification in not spending it or how it's presented. And, and the main reason of, well, we, we have to we have to account for in-season injuries, where the fact is when you're replacing a guy 
let's say who gets even who gets put on IR after week eight. The replacement level, the replacement player is usually a guy from the practice squad who's now going to account for the next nine weeks because you have 17 weeks in the season, including the bye week, and players get paid for that. So you have a guy, let's just say, on nine weeks at a prorated rate of the minimum salary, which for next year will be 495. So 495, let's do the math here. A guy caught up on the practice squad making the minimum next year of 495 is going to account for 262,000 in cap. So you can take that and let's say that happens for four other guys. That's 1.048 million for for injury replacements. Now obviously players get injured at different points of the season, but the point is you don't necessarily need to allocate that much for an injury buffer, so to speak. And then also you have ways even though the Bengals don't do this, but if it really got to be a pressing issue where a team was tied up against the cap, then you find a veteran you pump in some money, you give him a mo- money via signing bonus, you, you convert some of his base salary to a signing bonus, and then you're able to allocate that signing bonus over the remaining years of his deal, and it lowers his cap hit. So there are many ways to create ca- uh, cap space that way too. And so for me, there's frustration when it's justified as, well, they need to save that money for in-season injuries. Yes, of course, you need to save some money. You need to have some buffer. But it doesn't need to be at the levels that have been reported, which quite honestly, what is being reported by the team reporter and, and the local newspaper reporters is, is probably not what the actual uh, management is actually budgeting for in-season injuries. They know how much to budget for. You it's just not. that it's been – right. It's And it's just been reported that way. So um, – that's the way they offer. Now, they also say, well, we need to save that money for, for rolling over to use for extensions. And that, to me, just kind of you're conflating so many issues, not you, but people are conflating so many cap issues with that because, really, the rollover money is not true money. The rollover is just their cap dollars. And, again, the cap is really just an accounting mechanism. Um, and so, yes, you can always roll over unlimited amounts. Any any cap dollar or cap room you haven't used, you roll it over in the next year. But in no way does it really need to be – they say that, well, we need to – they'll say it next year. We need to roll it over for the William Jackson eventual extension. Well, the, the cap is not stagnant. The cap changes year on, year in and year out. It's it's continually increasing. And then the, the roster never stays the same too. Guys will be coming off the books as well. So that justification always gets to me because it's not truly how a team views it anyway. It's not how teams operate. It's not a cap within the cap. It's just rolled over into a big – uh, cap accounting pile, so to speak. Yep. Um, and so that's that. And, and Jake, I think we, you and I have had those discussions too. Um, but you know, other teams really don't view it that way. It, it, you can get really nuanced into how teams, I think, view it. But the way the way it's been reported and the justifications given that we they need money for the, for the in season injuries. And we just showed that if you're if you're moving up a guy from the practice squad at the mi- minimum salary of four ninety five, and then you just you. You prorate that based on the number of weeks he's added to the roster. You can fit five guys in ostensibly under a million dollars in cap based on injury replacements, depending on when those injured guys are are are, are, are being injured. Uh, and then more so, oh, I'm sorry. not to get too if I could not to get too complicated for a lot of these bottom roster guys that are, that then go on uh, IR, for example, not the veteran so to speak, but a, a guy on a rookie deal. Let's say a let's say a late round pick from last year's draft uh, gets gets injured. Who was who was a mid round pick? Auden Tate. Oh wait, mid round. Yeah, Auden <laughs> Tate, seventh round pick for twenty eighteen. Let's say he makes the final roster but gets injured after week six. Right, Auden Tate is likely to have what's called a split salary in his contract, meaning that if he goes to IR, 
his salary will count, but it will count at what's called the down amount, which is a lesser amount. So his cap hit, even though it counts while being on IR, there is a reduction in his cap hit as well. And so for a lot of these guys, it's not just the full amount that gets uh, moved over to IR because you still have to count for the guys on injured reserve. Their cap hits still count. But a lot of these guys, any guy on a rookie deal that's drafted from probably the third round on has what's called a split salary in their contract, meaning if they go to IR, their cap hit is going to be much less. Is it possible that Tyler Boyd had this? Because I noticed this last year when he went on IR, the, his cap hit went, and there was a little, on. I think it was over the cap, had a um, uh, his cap hit number and then a red number below it. Of, and it happened the final three weeks when he was on IR. I, I would suspect he may have, but Boyd was a second-round pick. Right, and, and that's why second I questioned round. it. Yeah, most second round picks probably don't have a. I mean, I, I haven't seen his, his contract, but most second round picks likely don't have what's called a split. But uh, I know, like Malik Jefferson does, Malik third round pick last year. I think he has a split. So, if, so for example, if Malik Jefferson, I, who I hope develops into a fine linebacker, uh, but if he goes on IR uh, at any point next year, he'll have a his cap hit will be reduced based on that split contract. So again, the whole point of me saying that, not to get too far in the weeds of split contract split provisions in a, in a rookie contract it's just that what's always reported as they need to save this amount of money 10 million for injury cushions that's just it's preposterous right. you just you'll never reach money uh because again most of the guys that are injured you're replacing them with minimum salary guys and then you're replacing them at a prorated rate because they're coming in as the season is unfolding yeah my last question here before we wrap this up andre is uh the, the upcoming CBA, and it's on the horizon, a CBA collective bargaining agreement, for those that don't know. Uh, and what changes should we expect? What kind of fears? I think a lot of people have some fears coming up. But, I mean, rookie uh, deal, uh, rookie wages, how they're going, uh, how the cap is being spent, or at least the 89% for most teams. Uh, should we expect to see a lot of changes in, in, in the way that's structured? And how do you feel uh, fear-wise for the football you love maybe potentially being held out? Yeah, it's a great question. If to be brutally honest, I I think we're headed towards football Armageddon. Uh, I think now whether or not games end up being missed in what would would be the 2021 season, I, I'm not going to go that far. Uh, but I will say, if if an agreement, if a new CBA is is agreed upon, it's going to be agreed upon at or around the same time as the last one. And the last one was agreed upon in July. I think it was actually ratified in early August. Because that yeah. was the year, actually, that the Bengals, to, to go on a little side tangent before I address your specific questions, Joe, that was the year the Bengals were actually pretty active in free agency uh, because the draft was held before. I love and it. Then, and then, and, then and we've talked, I've mentioned this on Twitter. I think actually the draft, not just as a Bengals fan, I think the draft should kick off the league year. I think you yeah. should have, now current players may object to that. The NFLPA may object. But if that's the case, and I'd love to see an analysis done. But if a draft is held before, uh, you can never meet all needs in the draft. So the Bengals in 2011, when the draft was held in that lockout season, were actually fairly active that year. Now, they were minor deals, but they signed a bunch of guys. They signed like even Taylor Mays, obviously didn't develop, but they, they signed a bunch of guys in 2011. Thomas I, Howard? Yeah, Thomas Howard, God rest his soul. He's no longer. <laughs> God rest his soul. Yeah. He's, 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 he's passed. But yeah. uh, Thomas Howard was a signee, uh, Taylor Mays. They, they had about, I think, five or six guys. And I know they've, 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 they've kind of patted themselves on the back uh, rather hilariously about signing eight guys was the comment. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think they included uh, their re-signing. 
one, yes, but they, did. they were actually fairly active with outside guys that year because they had to fill their roster spots and they they didn't do it in the, in the draft. But so I I do think if a CBA is agreed upon before games are missed, it's going to be at, at that late in the season. And and that I mean that was in August, and and I, I remember that season. Everybody was worried about that rookie class or the rookies. Oh, how are they going to survive? There's going to be no contribution. That 2011 draft class, by the way, that the least the first that first round specifically the first 11 picks. That's that's that all may go down. It's one of the, all the famers, but that may go down as as the best top 15 draft class of all time. The, the, I mean, yep. you have surefire Hall of Famers minus the quarterbacks. Actually, Cam was an MVP, but. You know, you had Jake Locker, I think, Blaine Gabbert. Those guys flamed out. But, I mean, Tyron Smith, the Hall of Fame left tackle, went number nine. J.J. Um, Watt. J.J. Watt. Miller, Julio Jones, Patrick Peterson. JJ, it was Marcel insane. Darius. I mean, all the – Von Miller, Hall of yeah. Fame player. That's that's a great class. But I, I think, Joe, it, it's – if the NFLPA wants to really move towards guaranteed contracts like their stated goal is, which I don't think they'll ever – but if they want to go down that path, they really have to – uh, at least give the appearance that they're willing to miss games. Uh, baseball did it in 1994. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember. Uh, you guys, they they canceled the season mid-season, and it ruined baseball for a little bit. But if you look at baseball salaries, they're 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 fine. I mean, obviously this year the free agent market was depressed. Uh, Jake, you probably know this too, in, in free agency for baseball. But baseball players were willing to miss the rest of the season in 1994. They canceled the World Series. Because they wanted more favorable terms in their collective bargaining agreement. And they got it. And the way they got it was they played hardball. So I'm not advocating for that from the player's side. I'm just saying that if the players want to do that or, or get what they want in this deal, in the new CBA, meaning higher you know, guaranteed contracts to the extent that they can, uh, shorter lengths for rookie deals, especially removing the fifth-year option for first-round players. Because you got a fifth-year option plus the tag, that's six years of control for a guy. That even those first-round players who are likely to, to, to be the guys that play the most in the league, in other words, maybe even exceed the average, which is three years, maybe triple that average, play nine years in the league, their first six years are cost-controlled. And so you want to you want to avoid that. You want to maybe even – there's talk about them reducing the franchise tag, maybe eliminating it. But if, if nothing else, reducing a team's ability to use it just one time and not the double tag or the triple tag that – the double tag that the Steelers tried to do with Le'Veon last – last year. But so these are serious issues from the player's perspective that they are getting shortchanged. I mean, we, we love the game of football, but the truth is we, we love the game because the players really make it. I mean, we're fans of the, the Bengals, right? I mean, we, we love the team, but the, the players are really what's special. I, I'm, I'm always a fan of the team. I always put the team ahead, but, but it's really the players are going to make or break it. No, nobody's going to tune in for replacement level players. I mean, I just don't care. They're, they're, no one's going to care for that. Um, and then it'll be the year they win it though. <laughs> it may. I mean, the, the, the way our luck is made, I, I, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. But the, the players really make the league, and, and literally the players put literally put their lives and limb on the line. So if they want a whole, if they want to really get their favorable terms in the next collective bargaining agreement, uh, they're going to at least have to give the appearance that they're willing to miss games. And if they do that, it could get pretty ugly. And and I honestly don't see an agreement being reached at the earliest. At the time, at the earliest, being when the last one was agreed upon, late July, early August. But I would not be shocked if we go into the 2021 season having missed a fir- uh, the first couple weeks of the season. It wouldn't shock me. Um, I, I hate to paint that picture because we all love this game, and it 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 
it, it would be terrible to to go in that you know the first weekend after Labor Day and not have NFL football around, uh, at least with the players that we that we know of for throughout the league. But again, if the players really want to get what they want, they're going to have to not blink because the owners are banking on that. The owners are saying these guys collectively are going to blink. And you're only as strong as your weakest link. And as long as if you get some players, whether they're low end or high end, that are going to break that link in that chain and cave, then you're going to have these guys meeting them on the owner's terms. Um, And so I do think that an agreement ultimately will be reached. But and I do think this is my uh, optimistic hat or optimistic uh, perspective speaking. I do think it will be agreed upon at the 11th hour before the season starts but I would not be surprised if if we go into the 2021 season if some games are missed. I don't think the whole season will be canceled. I mean, that that would be – I don't foresee that. But uh, the owners have to be uh, given at least the appearance that the players are willing to put a lot on the line. And on the line is I'm going to be missing game checks. And the way to get that is in any negotiation is, is through creating leverage or the appearance of leverage. And uh, that's that's the way it's going to happen. But to, to address your specific – question when the CBA is ultimately agreed upon, I think some terms would be some terms that I think could, could find common ground from the ownership and players. Uh, I, I think you could find ways to reduce rookie contracts in length, maybe three years, maybe even get a, do away with exclusive right free agency, which are, which is a, a step even below restricted free agency, exclusive rights players guys that uh, have an expiring contract, but don't have more than three accrued seasons. They have, you know, two or less. Uh, restricted free agencies are guys uh, or free agents are guys that have not four, but three uh, years and an expiring contract. And then re- unrestricted is four years. But since the length of a, of a typical NFL career is only three years, I think you could make restricted free agency two years and unrestricted free agency three years. I think that would be a compromise that, I mean, the owners probably wouldn't like that, obviously, but just dealing with the realities of, of professional football and the shelf life lives of players, I think that that could be something that we could see. I think Over the Cap had an article this week about reducing the length of rookie contracts. If you guys want to check that out, it was a pretty good article. Uh, but I think also you mentioned that the cash spending requirements. Right now, the way it's in this current CBA is teams are required to spend 89% of the cap in cash. We talked about the cap-cash distinction. So the way you can easily get to that is just pumping a lot of signing bonuses, to giving signing bonuses to players. And, and that counts towards the cash, even though the cap hit is reduced because you, you allocate that bonus over the years of the contract. But the way it's now, the way it is now, it's that's 89% of the cap in cash over a four-year period. Uh, and the first two years of the CBA were excluded from that. So – Years 2011 and 2012 were excluded, and then the two four-year periods were 2013 through 2016, and then 2017 through 2020, and we're in the last two years of that of that last four-year period. I think you can you can amend the CBA to say it's going to be either a higher percentage of the cap, maybe 95 percent uh, or 92 percent, whatever the number is over 89, and then you can make it over a shorter period too, maybe not over every single year, but maybe over two years. And you could further revise it by saying it's going to be based on the team's adjusted cap, not unadjusted cap, because you have a team like the Cleveland Browns, Jake, you mentioned all their rollover money. Their adjusted cap is well over $220 million, $230 million. Unfair advantage. Yeah, right. So their 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 unadjusted cap is, is league-wide. That's 188.2. But then added to that, you have their rollover cap. 
uh, of 50 plus million, I mean, you're well into the 130s, if not, or 230s, if not 240. So if you tie the spending based on the uh, each individual team's adjusted cap, obviously that that's very advantageous to the players and the owners may not buy that, but uh, that may be an area where the players really, uh, to get them to sign a, uh, an extension on the or a new agreement, uh, that may be an area where the owners kind of give in a little bit. But it does not look pretty overall, I'll wrap it up this way with regard to the CBA questions. It's it, it's going to be a tough battle for both sides because both sides are going. The owners, by the way, love this deal. They're they they would they would re, they would extend this deal on its current terms if they could right now. And the NFL is in is in its glory years in terms of its ratings and even though they had some ratings concerns last year, but in terms of their revenue, they're at an all time revenue high, and it's only going to continue. The the TV deals are up in a couple of years, and I think those those that money will be at the same levels or if not more. And so the owners are, are, are swimming in cash. And so the, the players want to get a, a bigger slice of that pie. Uh, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to get uglier before it gets better. And those are the terms. I think you, you, you make the spending requirements over shorter periods of time and you increase the percentage uh, to in the 90 percent, somewhere in the 90s. And you base it on the team's adjusted cap, uh, cap room or, or changes that I could see happening. Well, thanks for that summary. Hopefully things get resolved. I know Russell Okung is a good player follow too, who's been talking about the CBA quite a bit on Twitter. Yes. Andre, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, long overdue on my end. Uh, I apologize for not joining you guys sooner, but it was it was my pleasure. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Joe. Glad to get you on here. That's Andre. You can find him on Twitter if you want to get his takes on the Bengals spending habits or the CBA or just his Bengals takes in general. You can find him at Andre Parado 13. That's two R's, two T's in the last name. Go give him a go give him a look on Twitter. That'll do it for the Lockdown Bengals podcast today. As you probably know, tomorrow is the day that we'll record our mailbag for the weekend mailbag. So in case you need a reminder, make sure you get those questions. And I'm going to re-record this later. I'm just going to stop recording now. I was going to ask you, Andre. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On Podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.